the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast. I'm James, and hanging out with me, as always, are my good friends, Brian and Mike. Gentlemen, what has been going on with you? Well, uh... I am in the middle of moving. I think I mentioned that the last time. So I'm sitting here in an almost empty apartment with a mattress on the floor and a television in front of me. No computer, not really much anything else to do. You know, that still is a better furniture arrangement than half of the guys in my college dorm. Do you have an idea of when you're going to be able to actually get moved into your other place? or you know, Well, that... the power is supposed to be turned on next Wednesday. Oh, this is I... the new place. <laughs> Well, as, as you might recall, I was having that problem being hacked last time, and so yeah. I put a fraud report on my credit reports, and that meant that when the power company went to turn on my power, they said, oh, well, we can't verify your credit, your social security number, so they had me sitting there for, of course, they, they provide you with an eight-hour window when the guy's going to show up, oh. so I'm sitting there all day on Friday, or Thursday, rather, waiting for someone to show up and turn on my power, and I get an email at the end of the day saying they couldn't verify my credit. So I had to actually physically go in and show them my Social Security card so that they would turn on my power. Very frustrating. I mean, at least they're trying to protect you from getting, I don't know, an entire home opened up in your name. Right. (laughs) I mean, that much is good, question mark. It's great. The the fraud report is obviously working. It just would have been nice to get that email at the beginning of the day oh, rather than the end of the staying day. Staying home from work all day, waiting for somebody who was never going to arrive. That's about par for the course with places like this, though. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you were just talking about fraud reports and credit. I had my credit card number or my debit card number stolen on Monday. Wow. And my debit card agency had a – their fraud committee or fraud department, the very first transaction that tried to go through, it was $70 to load a phone card in Russia somewhere. They (laughs) froze the card immediately and wanted to talk to me. And when I called them, the person that I was talking to was like very hesitant. and You can tell that she'd really rehearsed this, but she was expecting me to just explode at her and scream like, why did you shut down my credit card? And I'm more like, thank you for shutting down my credit card. (laughs) Yeah, they're very sophisticated. I managed, uh, somebody stole my credit card number about a year ago and tried to use it at Kohl's. And Kohl's is someplace that I actually shop occasionally, and yet they still identified it as a fraudulent transaction. It astounded me. I was amazed. Years back when Joy and I went to England, we actually informed our credit card company that we were going to be traveling out of the country. But Mm -hmm. the first time that we used our card in London. Next thing you know, I'm getting a cell phone call saying, uh, Mr. Felix, we just had a hit on your card. I'm like, yes, yes, that was me. Thank you. Thank you. Check your notes. But we do appreciate watching so carefully. Yeah. yeah. Protection can be a double-edged sword, but at least in this case, the sword was working for me rather than against me. Yes. Right. Phone card in Russia, that's a pretty big flag. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you could tell by the transactions that they were making after that. They were like, oh, well, maybe we went too big. Let's try something little in the Ukraine. Although if you had like an authentication thing where like your card company would have called me to see if that was you. And I said, well, what did he do? Oh, supposedly do. Uh, he bought a phone card in Russia. I'd be like, yeah, that's Brian. Yeah, that's probably him. Yeah. <laughs> Well, fortunately, I don't have you on as a verification contact for my credit card. <laughs> That's probably smart of you. That would be weird. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, uh, Mike? What have you been up to? 
I had been sick, like way sick, out of sick days sick for way too many days in a row. And it's one of those things where you're like, oh, I, all right, tomorrow I'm going to feel better. And it, that's, that's the end of it because this is, this is the last I can feel it. <laughs> and I wake up and I, I say, okay, today I'm going to work. And then my wife is like, <laughs> really? You're going to work? Like, yes. I don't want anything, anything else other than that. They call it walking <laughs> pneumonia for a reason. Yeah. She's like, well, okay, are you going to walk Stella to school? Like, oh, no, I'm feeling way too crappy for that. I'm like, so you're going to walk her to the bus stop? Yeah, that I'm going to work. And she's like, okay, we'll see how that goes. And I get back and I say, I'm not going to work today. She's like, yeah, yeah, I saw that coming. So um, the good news with that is that I had a lot of time for reading, and reading I did. So we'll be talking about that during the Geek Out session. Speaking of reading and you reading specifically, thank you very much for recommending the Alcatraz novels by Sanderson. Oh, so much fun. look at them. Yeah, I went through all of those in probably two and a half weeks. They were delightful. Just so much whimsy. I love that. I'm mm-hmm. going to have to put those on my list now. It's YA. Oh, yeah, fun. But don't let that stop you. Oh, yeah, there's been a, quite a few YA novels I've read that I got an immense amount of enjoyment from. I can't name any of them right now, but... <laughs> uh, well, speaking of geek out, I say let's just jump head first into that. Uh, I would like to go first because I have been geeking out over something that was just... Uh, getting it was such a surprise, but you talk about one of the most pleasant surprises. For like eight years now, I've had a specific book on my Amazon wish list uh, ever since a friend got it, and I've like been wanting it so bad. And you both know my wife, uh, and she is, she is awesome. She is just the awesome. And just out of the blue, last month, she bought for me the book, before the mast, life and death aboard the Mary Rose. And this book is just, it's about 500 pages long. For those who have no idea what I'm talking about, the Mary Rose was a Tudor-era 16th century English warship in the fleet of King Henry VIII. And she sunk with all hands aboard, I believe, in the mouth of the, the River Thames. And years ago, Uh, They discovered her wreckage, were able to recover thousands of artifacts uh, from pottery to longbows to barrels and crates, copious remains of the crew, and even found a large section of the hull and the lower decks still on the ocean floor, which they were able to bring up and were able to clean and preserve, and now it and all of these artifacts are on display at the Mary Rose Museum in Portsmouth, England. And I'm pulling up some images of that on Google right now, and it looks just fascinating. See, back when Joy and I did go to England, I got to go to the Mary Rose Museum. I got to see a lot of these artifacts, you know, with only a pane of glass between me and them. Now, the hull was not on display yet. It was still in the process of over time, and they were spraying a certain chemical into it, allowing it to be soaked into the the wood. And then once that was done, they would just spray it again and again, over and over to preserve these pieces. And this book... Just the fantastic level 
of detail and intricacy it goes to in describing the life aboard the Mary Rose and the artifacts that were recovered. And let me read some of the titles of some of the different segments. Silk hats to woolly socks, clothing remains, purses to paternosters, personal possessions, sickness and injury at sea, the money that they found on board, navigation and ships, instrumentation and communication, the musical instruments they found, and they even delve into like the remains of the crew, the number of individuals who were found, their stature, their age at death, uh, the skeletal morphology and the dentistry, uh, pathology, anomalies. I could, from this book alone, I could start a whole separate podcast and probably spend a dozen episodes going over the content of these two books. I would listen to that show. Mm-hmm. So that is one thing that I have been, the primary thing I just had my nose buried into. I've still been playing Destiny 2 on the Xbox. Most of that, though, has been playing with friends online. And I have a funny story to tell about it, actually. One of the things that you can get in Destiny uh, for your character is that you can, you can get these little emotes. It's like you press a button and your character will, like, salute or wave or will do a little dance. And they've got different little emotes you can either earn as a reward or you can even buy using the in-game currency. Well, one of them is called... I forget the actual name of it. I think it's called The Ridiculous Walk. But it is a perfect homage to the Ministry of Silly Walk sketch from Monty Python. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, it's fantastic. I got it. But what I found humorous was that this Silly Walk was actually responsible for them pulling a high-profile part of the game for two weeks because of the glitch it caused. No. (laughs) One of the biggest things about Destiny is the player-versus-player tournaments. One of the highest-profile versions of the PvP is a tournament called the Trials of the Nine, where you and your squad face off against another squad. If you defeat them, then you go against another squad. You defeat them, you go on to the next one, so on, so on. As long as you continue to be undefeated, you keep on rising in the ranks, and if you get a certain number of wins without any losses, then you earn better rewards. Well, apparently, in the arena where you fight in if you went to the corner and if you did the silly walk it would take you off the edge of the screen where you could shoot in but no one could shoot you (laughs) oh my gosh so i think it is absolutely wonderful that a monty python reference broke a game and caused them to have to pull that feature and spend two weeks fixing it that is delightful when I read that, I'm like, nothing could have made them happier. <laughs> Thankfully, they did not pull the funny walkie moat, but they did pull it from the store. Gotcha. So that no no other people could buy that in order to to use it in to, to weaponize a silly walk. Exactly. There are weaponized jokes already out there. Monty Python proved that. <laughs> but uh, they could not weaponize the silly walk. And if you already had bought it, you get to keep it. But they pulled it from the store. And they have since fixed the glitch. But still, (laughs) that's just delicious. (laughs) So what else have I been geeking out to? Oh, uh, speaking of fun books, though, besides Before the Mast, I shared with you guys last time, uh, I had jumped back headfirst into reading. And one book that I had just started to read, The Tattered Banner, from a series of books called The Society of the Sword by Duncan Hamilton. I finished that book. I read the next one called The Huntsman's Amulet, and I'm about a quarter of the way through the third book called The Telastrian Song. It's a very fun read. It's a quick read. If you were to just sit down and read, you could probably easily hammer it out in half a day. 
but it's a fun read. It's an interesting world that the author has built with sword fighters and where magic is outlawed. And where sword fighters who have graduated from the various academies are seen as the creme de la creme of society and have their own rules and subculture. You know, it puts them on the same level, but still apart from the rest of the gentry. And uh, fun read. Very fun read. Highly recommend to anybody. Sounds like he's pandering to us sword lovers. You know, (laughs) he probably is. It wouldn't surprise me if he didn't know someone who was in either the SCA or in some other type of HEMA or Western martial art group, because this really is just firing straight at us. Yeah, I'm not criticizing that idea. I mean, he he can pander to me. That's okay. (laughs) Please pander away. So that's what I've been geeking out to. What about you guys? What have you been up to, Brian? I have had lately Star Trek on the brain. Never a bad thing. Uh, Yes, well, uh, I'm sure our audience is all aware of the Star Trek Discovery that uh, CBS has put on their streaming service. Yeah, have not had a chance to watch even a single episode of that. I I caught part of one that was on the air, but it was at a bad time, and I also kind of feeling like crap at the time, so I I didn't get a chance (laughs) to watch it. Yeah, I did watch the first episode, the only one that they made available on broadcast. Oh, that's unwise. Yeah, I did not care for it. Um, really? I was, yeah, I was so excited when I saw Michelle Yeoh sitting in that captain's chair, only to find out, okay, well, no, she's going to be like the introductory captain, and we're going to hand it off to somebody else. Like, oh, well. Oh, that's a know, waste. I know. Like, so looking forward to seeing her as the captain. And the aesthetic did not feel like Trek to me. I mean, they've got this opening sequence that looked a little bit more like uh, Catch Me If You Can. You know, just animated 2D kind of thing. Like, this doesn't look like Star Trek. Where's the ship flying past the screen over and over again? Do they have a nice orchestral when they opened up? You know, I don't recall the music. Okay. Well, I'll YouTube it. Yeah, they redesigned the Klingons again, which, I mean, that happens. And the visual effects are just like they put ILM in a blender and poured it on the screen. It's like they wanted to make sure there was a visual effect in every single pixel on the screen. It's like... You know, space is actually mostly empty. (laughs) We don't need to have that much stuff all over the place. If there was that much, you know, interstellar background going on in reality, our current astronomers would just be having a heyday. Right. Yeah. Or a heart attack. And it's like, yeah, the whole feel of it didn't feel very Star Trek-y. And the bridge officers arguing with each other and shouting at one another is just like, wow, this is is not the Star Trek that I imagined. It's keeping up with the Cardassians. (laughs) <laughs> oh, oh, oh my gosh. I'll give this the pilot episode. Again, I haven't seen it, but when you said, ah, I didn't like it, it kind of didn't surprise me because I can barely think of a series where I liked the pilot episode. I mean, mm, yeah. it seems like a lot to just get all the characters introduced, get them out there, and have a good story. I, I can't mm-hmm. think of maybe uh, Firefly had a good first episode, but other mm-hmm. than that, I'm hard-pressed to think of a show that that. <laughs> but they didn't air that first episode in the right place. No, they aired it like so second to last, I think. Hey, I'm just saying they wrote a good first episode. They did. If Fox yeah. wanted to screw that up, that's on them. Well, let me ask you guys <laughs> this, though. Do either one of you two remember... Back in the mid-80s, the first time you watched the first new Star Trek The Next Generation episode, Encounter at Farpoint? And thought, oh, this doesn't seem like Star Trek at all. Exactly. <laughs> See, yeah. I got introduced to it sideways anyway. So, like, I, I think I first saw that they were doing it as a promo in a cereal box where they did Star Trek The Next Generation collector cards if you buy such-and-such cereal. And I pulled it out, and I'm like, hey— there's a new Star Trek. 
And I was in a certain geek place in my brain where that was just fine by me. That I didn't care that they modernized everything. Now that I look back at Farpoint, I'm like, oh, wow, that is so the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, I remember as a kid seeing the first episode. And, of course, I love him now, but thinking, wait, the, the captain can't be bald. <laughs> Um, do you know what? No, no. The ca- no, the captain can't be... They can't, Star Trek can't have a bald captain. Then again, I was like, I don't know, 10, 11 years old at this time, so I was very much still in the Kirk mentality of leadership. Uh, see, here's the thing, is that we usually start watching Star Trek as a family in season three. And so That's when my wife went back and started in season one, she had a similar reaction except to Riker's face. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of universally recognized that once Riker got his beard, that's when things really started firing on all the cylinders for Star Trek. Well, to the point that that's become a, uh, a phrase, you know, similar to Fonzie jumping the shark, mm-hmm. a television series that grows the beard has started taking itself seriously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you've got a point there that we may look back and say, oh, well, this... It was a change in direction, but what came out of it was so wonderful. But honestly, it's going to be hard to tell because they've hidden the entire rest of the series behind this streaming service that you got to pay yeah, all five, access. Bucks a month for. Oh, which so I what am. I'm going to do is I'm going to wait for it to all be over, and I'm going to get my free week's subscription, and I'm going to just binge it all in, and then I'll make my decision whether or not I like it. I'm, I'm not going to pay five bucks a month for it. Yeah, same here. I'm hoping that at some point some deal will be struck with Netflix, who has kept Star Trek on their streaming service all this yeah. time because they're not stupid, and they know what their fans like. And I'm hoping to catch it on there. But no, I'm I'm not paying an extra five, ten, whatever it is for another service on my Xbox just to catch one show. Yeah, you yeah. better. Well, now, what's banking. interesting is it actually is a Netflix production. Wait, but it can't be shown on Netflix in the U.S., only overseas. Really? Wow. Weird, huh? Yeah. Okay, that throws me. Yeah, that is an interesting choice. And this is the thing. is like they're, they're banking on their show being so good that they are going to draw a fan base entirely to a streaming service. Mm-hmm. And, you know, really, you've you got to be wowing me with more content than that to sign up for yet another streaming service. Now, there is another interesting-looking sci-fi show on CBS All Access. And I can't for the life of me remember its name or even what it's about. But I, I remember looking through their catalog. And it's like, oh, wow, there actually is more interesting looking content on there than just Star Trek Discovery. Um, and I'll look into that when I get to the point where I get that free week. And who knows, maybe they'll convert me and I'll sign up for that $5 a month. But it's you pay $5 a month and you're still getting commercials. Yeah. Oh, lovely. <laughs> you pay $10 a month without the commercials. It's kind of a interesting setup. But so I was looking at, at Discovery and thinking, ah, this is not really what I wanted to see in a Star Trek show. So like I'd heard about this other show that Fox was doing, The Orville. Love The Orville. Yes. And I was skeptical at first. You know, Seth MacFarlane is not usually the kind of humor that I like. He's most known for Family Guy, which a good episode of Family Guy usually has one joke that I laugh at. I laugh at it pretty darn hard. But it's not usually worth putting up with all the other crap. Excuse my French. (laughs) Exactly. No, no, you hit the nail on the head with that. But the Orville, although it's comedic, it's not really a comedy. It's a decent sci-fi show with comedy of, what am I saying, like a comedic layer over the top of it. Yeah. 
Okay, so this isn't uh, like this isn't like watching Galaxy Quest. I mean, I, I saw that that there was this comedic sci-fi show, and I'm like, you know, comedy sci-fi is. I mean, we're we're left with the Red Shirts book, which was great and hilarious, but obviously Star Trek, you know, lampooning and it doesn't have as much. Uh, what's a good way to? It isn't as hammy as like Galaxy Quest was. Okay, so this is not a parody of Star Trek. It has its own life. Yes, definitely. Okay, and it's fascinating because. As much as Star Trek Discovery is not feeling like Star Trek, the Orville really does feel like – it feels like the original series, honestly. It does. The stories that they're telling, like it's as if they mixed the original series with Stargate SG-1. When I read that Seth MacFarlane was going to be doing this show for Fox, I actually had a lot of confidence in it. The reason is that Seth MacFarlane has always been just a, a total and consummate Star Trek geek. He even was an extra in a handful of Star Trek Enterprise episodes. <laughs> so he was living the fan dream is that he, he was in the enough in-circle so he could get into the show just because of wanting to? Exactly. I remember he was in the background of a couple of episodes, I think mostly during their fourth and final season. He even had a couple speaking parts, like he was in engineering and talking to uh, Commander Tucker, but he was there. And probably because he called his agent or called someone who called someone was like, hey, hey, how can I get in this show? I don't care. I just want to be in the uniform, in the background, pressing buttons, doing stuff. <laughs> and he has turned that around and has got himself a show. And I hesitate to call it an homage, but you can tell that this is done by a man who his formative years were spent watching and absorbing Star Trek. And that had a big impact on him. He gets it, is what I'm trying to say. He gets yeah, what Star Trek is about. It's very clear that he loves Star Trek and that his show is doing the things that he likes about Star Trek and, honestly, the things that I like about Star Trek. They're addressing topics that are, frankly, kind of surprising that they are making it through the network, that they're, the network is approving these scripts. And I guess part of that is because science fiction and comedy both have something in common, and it's that they can address topics that other shows would have to stay away from. They can dip into some controversy that is, you know, grab those hot potatoes. And part of it's, you know, with science fiction, you've got a little bit of emotional insulation. You know, you, you disguise, well, this show, we want to talk about this topic, but we're going to spin it and we're going to make it an alien with a weird culture. And it'll be really clear what we're talking about. But because we're not actually talking about that topic, people can insulate themselves from it and can think about it without getting emotional. And comedy, you know, comedy has always been the place where we can talk about the things that are taboo, that are forbidden. Comedians can, part of their job is to shock us and to make us think about things that we're uncomfortable thinking about normally, we are uncomfortable talking about. And to have a show that is both science fiction and comedy both really opens the doors for them to talk about some topics. And I don't agree with the conclusions that they always draw, but I have been very happy that in one particular instance, I think it was the second episode, where it was pretty obvious what McFarlane and the producers, what their opinion was. And I won't give any spoilers telling you what that was all about. But in the middle of the show, McFarlane's character, the captain, Captain Mercer, stops and he says, are we doing the right thing? I'm thinking about this and we're kind of violating this guy's culture. And ultimately, they conclude they were doing the right thing. I happen to disagree with them. But the fact that they stopped and they, he asked that question really, really made me respect him as a writer and as a producer and the show in general um, and made me think, you know, this thing's got some legs. This is going to be 
a show that is significant, just beyond the fact that it's doing Trek better than Trek does. But just by for its own virtues, I think it's a very, very valuable piece of media. I am happy to say that it did get renewed for at least a second season. Really? Oh, already? That's yep. great. So Where did I watch the Orville? I will admit, you know, it does have some excellent humor and uh, some excellent commentary. About every other episode, I do have to say for our listeners, there is a moment or two with kind of adultish humor. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not heavy. It's more sprinkled on in a place here and there. But uh, if any of our listeners do decide to give it a watch on our recommendation, just be aware of that. So would you say that this is probably, I mean, if you had to if you had to put an age limit in which, would you show this to uh, any of the members of your junior high youth group? I would say yes. Okay. I would probably uh, put it at like, if you want me for rating, I'd say TV 13. Okay. Yeah, I think that'd be good. I like. But I was also the one who got in trouble for showing some of the youth group Monty Python and the Holy Grail, so <laughs> take that for what it's worth. Okay. All right. That, that's important context. Yeah. Important context. Yes. One other thing that's been pulling me into Trek a lot more, my ex-wife has uh, started a podcast of her own called Beginning the Trek, and she has never watched Star Trek, not a single episode, but she's got a friend who is a big, I don't know if we're calling them Trekkies or Trekkers right now, but... He's a Star Trek geek, and he has curated, he has selected 52 episodes from all of Star Trek that he is recommending that she watch. So she watches an episode, and then later that week, they discuss it. And first of all, it's, it's kind of nice to hear her voice again. I miss her. But it's also giving me the opportunity to watch Star Trek with new eyes, to hear what somebody who's an adult watching it for the first time, somebody who's pretty socially conscious in terms of her ideas about feminism and racism and so forth, particularly the role that women play in television in the 1960s. But to hear her talk about it, say, experiencing it for the first time, really lets me watch it with fresh eyes also. So I've been watching those few episodes of the original series again and like really been able to think about them and think about how significant they are, um, both on their own and within the whole Trek milieu. Uh, so it's it, it has been very interesting. And once again, that podcast is called Beginning the Trek. I'm sure we'll have a link up on our page. Yes, eventually. Speaking of links on the page, I do have to give an apology to our listeners. Last episode, I promised that I would put up a list of the bug-out bag and emergency equipment that I had consulted for building my bug-out bag. Life has gotten busy, children have gotten sick, and I have gotten sick. And uh, I have neglected to do that yet. But if it isn't already up by the time of this podcast posting, then it will be soon. So my apologies for that. If you want to talk about being sick, try having two kids in two different schools. When you've got one in an elementary school and one in a junior high, you've got two different germ pools. And so (laughs) it's just like you're sending them off to nursery school for the first time all over again and catching what everybody else has. So you're saying you have the plague. I'm saying that the plague has come and gone to my house, met a new plague, had a baby, and that plague came back to our house. So you've had plenty of time to read and to play games and other stuff is what you're saying. Well, the game playing has been pretty squarely in the Super Mario Brothers Wii department. I am not sure why. I think perhaps because that was what was already in, and I didn't have the energy to change it. Um, because if you're already delirious, then watching a little guy with shrooms is just what you need. It's, it seems commonplace. Like a plumber with shrooms. Yes, I live here. <laughs> 
The uh, the thing that I really plugged my head into it in the last episode, we talked about how I was reading some translations of Fiore. Yeah. And I picked up another couple of books, and I'm like, you know what? I have just enough slices of history. Why don't I just read through the Italian tradition, as translated into English, as it exists on my bookshelf? Which, you know, again, it sounds pretty slim, and given the grand history of things, it is fairly slim, but enough that you can see certain pivotal movements in terms of the shift from a medieval era to a Renaissance era. Now, granted, all these treatises technically are written during the Renaissance, as we have Fiore and Vadi. But as you move later and later, you see a lot of the mentality of the Renaissance and the cultural movements of the Italian Renaissance trickling down from academia down into everyday life and down into the pragmatics of how do I stay alive? And this is one of the things that really excites me about historical swordsmanship is some of the more academic factors behind it, is that when you have major cultural revolutions, it affects the way that you teach. It affects the way that you, that you deduce. It affects your understanding of what knowledge is. And all these things are manifest in various elements of society, and it is apparent in the fencing treatises if you follow them long enough and far enough. And this is just something that I've always been fascinated with and it's always been tucked into the back of my head. And as I read through Mencilino and then came into Camilio Agrippa, as translated by Ken Monshine, I felt like I was reading somebody who really understood. I just fell in love with his introduction to Agrippa's text because he goes into the sociology. He goes into the major cultural shifts. He goes into the reasons why things were shifting the way that they were and what were some of the intellectual underpinnings of the pedagogy and the mathematics and everything. And it was just absolutely delicious. So and you, you weren't just getting a study on the martial aspect of the time, but also a sociological lesson as well. Uh, and philosophical lesson. And so a lot of these other translators, I mean, they're fine. They're fine translators. And if we were to be, if I were to go up against any one of these translators on the list, out of 50 battles, I would have lost 60 of them. But <laughs> this man is an academic, and he knows how to excite all of those academic parts of my brain. And so it was a challenging introduction, and I thank him for every bit of it. I just barely gotten into the meat of the text, because as soon as I finished up the introduction, I took a little break and went into something a little bit lighter, a little bit weirder, a little bit darker, and a little bit sillier all in one, because the new Welcome to Night Vale novel came out, It Devours. Ooh. It Devours pitches itself as sort of a funny exploration and silly dialogue between science and religion, which, let's be real, Night Vale, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it is uh, a lighthearted, dark, absurdist humor set in this town in which everything from the, the Twilight Zone and the X-Files happens, presented with the tone of Tales from Lake Wobegon. <laughs> if Garrison Keillor had read the Necronomicon. Right. Right. And so when you have this sort of flavor, I mean, and you're, and you're talking about the interchange between science and religion, which has 
actually been kind of an issue ever since 1543, I believe, when we had Copernicus publish his treatise. And so these guys aren't solving anything in this text. So don't go to the text expecting some grand treatise taking science or religion 100% seriously, because it's welcome to Night Vale. This is, this is comedic, absurdist humor. I mean, come on. But given the setting that it was in, it, I thought that it was a, a fun read. It was a better constructed novel than their first attempt in the Night Vale universe. This felt like it actually was paced like a novel. The characters were interesting. They were silly and they were funny and they were horrified, but of, of course, that's what you get. So I thoroughly enjoyed It Devours, and it was absorbing enough that I once again missed my stop and found myself on the subway <laughs> arriving at Cleveland Circle being like, oh, crap, my stop was back there. So if it makes me miss my stop, it probably means it's a good, engaging read. And uh, pretty soon I'm getting back into the text of Ken Monshine's translation of Camilio Agrippa. Cool. So that's what I've been doing. I will say every time I talk to you, you make me feel bad for not reading more period <clears throat> academic treatises on sword fighting. You know, you shouldn't feel bad for not reading them. You should I feel don't. bad for not fighting like them. No, just kidding. <laughs> That's terrible. That's terrible. <laughs> well, you know, as much as you read them, I really would love it if we could get you healthy enough to actually put to practice some of what you have theorized. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's honestly, that's how I got into the historical fencing treatises is I was fencing with, as you know, our, our old teacher, Jim Shannon. And it was one of those things that I'm like, you know, we talk about the history of this and we, we talk about a lot of hypotheticals. We talk about, you know, it, we did historical fencing light. I mean, it's got to be made safe for a group that has 10 to 71-year-olds in it. Yeah. And so there are things that we didn't do and we couldn't do and you shouldn't do to your friends. Um, and, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things like, well, what was it like? And then I found that Jared Kirby had translated Italian rapier combat, Capoferro's treatise. And I picked that up and kind of picked through it. And I started just collecting more of them because I saw, wait a minute, this is really a Renaissance text in every way, shape, and form. And the things that fascinate me about Enlightenment thinking are apparent between the lines of the text. So that really kind of got me into it. And I'm really now taking it more seriously in terms of the reading. So I have to ask, have either one of you guys had a chance to go see the new Thor that just came out, Thor Ragnarok? Oh, did that happen? Not yet. Not yet. You know, I have not. I have heard. I had a friend text me saying that he has nothing bad to say about that movie. And from him, that was high praise. And it got me thinking about the holiday movies that are coming up. But it also got me thinking about in the earlier episode where we talked about the summertime blockbuster movies that we were really looking forward to. And I thought it would be good to recap and we can discuss what they were and if we got to go see them and our impressions of them. Yeah, I was bad about that. I was super excited about uh, Luc Besson's film, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Yep. And but stuff happened right about the time that that got released. I, I missed an episode, and things were hairy for us. So I completely missed that film. Uh, um, you're not the only one. You, me, and um, several thousand other people as well. Yeah, I hear the reviews for that were not great. I'm I'm still interested in checking it out on my own when it comes out on Netflix. Well, I did see it. Oh, what did you uh, think? I really, really, really wanted to love it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, there were story problems and acting problems. It's like the girl playing Loreline was being outacted by the mute alien CG creature that didn't oh. exist. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing if you're being upstaged by Rocket Raccoon, but this was not Rocket Raccoon, and she was still being upstaged. And it was like... The idea was so wonderful, and the, the opening sequence where they're, they're talking about the origin of the space station that this thing is going to be taking place on, and we're meeting all of these alien species, and we're seeing it over time, that was beautiful. The first 10 minutes of that movie, I thought, this is going to be fantastic. And then it just never quite delivered on it. I didn't believe either of the main characters and their personalities. Um, I thought that they didn't earn their victory. I was disappointed. And it's a beautiful movie. I mean, the visual effects, the cinematography is top-notch. It's beyond gorgeous. But that's not enough to carry it. I mean, if you're going to no. spend $180 million on a movie, spend some of it on the script. I'm sorry. And on proper casting. Yeah. I have a feeling that Loreline's the actress. Um, I don't remember her name off the top of my head now. But she's she comes from an old money family. Okay. I have a feeling that she bought her role. Hmm. <laughs> that she... She may have made a large donation to the budget and said, I want a starring part. You know, it'd be and, funny if the money she donated paid for the CGI for that uh, mute character that acted her. Right. <laughs> and there was so much potential in the story that just they didn't do anything with. Like, they made a big deal of, okay, well, the economy is starting to suffer, and this is going to be a disaster. And, like, we never really found out what was going on with the economy, and they had built this whole race of aliens whose entire job was to take care of financial transactions and they never had a line. Oh, we've got all of these different environments and all of these aliens living here and our only interaction with them is Valerian dashing through their environment in a straight line. They didn't even have to dodge anything. And it was like, you had so much potential and you didn't realize any of it. It was dang, terribly disappointing. Like you, Mike, I think I'm going to catch it on Netflix mostly because I want to see the visual spectacle that I heard that this movie was. It definitely was that. Cool. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing is that the special effects is not the movie. The special effects nope. is a tool. It's a, it's a means of telling the story. Special effect without a story is a pretty boring thing. <laughs> the, Credit the, to George Lucas for those the, Those words. are called the prequels, correct? Yeah. That was from his documentary, From Star Wars to Jedi, The Story Behind the Story. And though I remembered those words, not everyone <laughs> else did. Yeah. Anywho, enough about bashing the mistakes of two visionary geniuses. Right. What other movies were there that we're uh, talking about? One that uh, I was sort of on the fence about. I was kind of like, you know, it's interesting concept. Yeah, I think I want to. Maybe I want to do this. Um, but I got sold on it real fast. Uh, was Wonder Woman. And I'll say this, not being a huge fan of the comic book genre, I thought it was a wonderful romp through the world. I mean, and given that it was our world, and they decided to dial it back and put it into the past, especially in a place where we could have somebody shocked at a futile war, and also have, I mean, it was what it was. It was over-the-top action sequences like you would expect from the superhero genre. My wife went to go see it with one of her friends. She said, yeah, you got to go see it. And so I took my eldest daughter to go see it, and I thought it was a thoroughly enjoyable film, and I'm really glad that that was one of the ones I was able to catch. My worry is that we watch this movie and that we're going to get the wrong message from it. What's the message that, uh, that we should be taking away? What's the message we shouldn't be taking away? I'm worried that we're going to expect all DC movies are going to be this quality from now on. 
Yeah. Um, you know, it's one of the things that was discouraging me is that I haven't been terribly thrilled with what DC has been putting out uh, recently. I, I am crossing my fingers and just saying a little prayer when Justice League, which comes out very soon, is going to be hitting at least semi-close to the mark that Wonder Woman hit because I loved it. Yeah. I mean, it completely pulled me in as for for not just a superhero movie, but a decent World War One movie as well. Mm. There was a good stretch that I forgot I was watching a superhero origin movie. I was so firmly implanted in the World War One storytelling, getting through England and going across Europe and getting to uh, the trenches. I had forgotten that it was a Wonder Woman movie. And then when Chris Pine's character is like, you know, we, no, we can't go across it. That's no man's land. You know, no one can do that. And then she goes, I forget what the line was, like something like, I am no man or, or you know, I can do oh. it. And like she sheds the cloak and you see the superhero, the, the Wonder Woman outfit underneath. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is a superhero movie. <laughs> you know, one thing I will say that uh, I thoroughly enjoyed about that scene, which hit me for personal reasons that, that were just absolutely silly. Just before the movie came out, I just so happened to be channel surfing and came across an old episode of the 1970s Wonder Woman TV show wherein she was fighting neo-Nazis, and she picked up and threw a tank. And then I watch this, and she's fighting Germans, and she picks up and throws a tank. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, this is, I, I will say this, it's at least consistent. There's symmetry between the two. But she didn't spin around yet. That made me sad. I don't remember her spinning around. You know, I think that they didn't do that. You know what? She didn't need it. That's right. Gal Gardot did not need it. Uh, overall, I loved it. I loved Wonder Woman. It was fantastic. I cannot wait till she's a little bit older, and I can't wait to show it to Michaela. Oh, yeah. Brian, did you get a chance to see it? Uh, we saw it together. That's right. We did. <laughs> Holy cow. You were in town for that one. You know, I knew I had seen it twice, but I've, you have to forgive me, uh, running on parent levels of oh, sleep at this moment. So, uh, yeah, I knew I'd seen it with my wife, but yes, you're right. You and I went to go see it together. That was fantastic. The other movie that I had talked about, uh, looking forward to over the summer, and I also saw twice, uh, was Guardians of the Galaxy 2. And Marvel at this point is just, they've figured out their formula, and they're they're churning them out right now. And usually when you get to the point of just, okay, we're knocking, this one's going to be put out in the summer. This one's going to be put out in the winter. This one's going to be put out in the spring. You get worried about overuse, and you get worried about burning out. But so far, for the vast majority of their movies, Marvel's doing good. You know, I I didn't care for Guardians as much as I did the first one. I think when the first Guardians came out, I had no idea what to expect. I was like, this is kind of a goofy set of characters. I don't I don't really understand what they're doing here. And it was so surprising that, you know, I was disarmed. And I went into the second one knowing what to expect. And I was like, okay, well, this was kind of ordinary. Mm -hmm. Ordinary for a Marvel movie is still pretty darn good, but yeah. it didn't enchant me the same way the first one did. I have to say that. I will agree with that. I did enjoy the music selection of the first one better than the second one. Mm, uh, the too. first one had more memorable music. Like you could pick out individual songs and like, you know, hum them later and uh, it would bring back the remembrance of a certain scene. The second one didn't have that. The music didn't have it. It was still good, but not quite that same outstanding uniqueness as the first one. Not to say it wasn't bad, not to say that they didn't mesh well with the scenes they were coupled with. But the first one did stand out just that little bit more. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I had one that was kind of a little bit lesser known film that I had mentioned before called The Stars Between Us. Yeah. And I unfortunately missed it in the theater, but I did pick it up on Amazon a few weeks ago. And it is the story of the first child born on Mars, the first colony ship to go there. Uh, the astronaut discovers unexpectedly she's pregnant. And so the child gestates in zero gravity and is born on Mars and grows up in this, this low gravity. Huh. And uh, he decides he wants to go back to Earth. He wants to find his father and meet this girl that he's been chatting with on the Internet. But because it was an accident that he was born there, it was never supposed to have happened. It was a big secret. His entire existence is classified. Nobody knows there was a kid born on Mars. Oh, crap. And so he comes back, and he can't really tell anybody, hey, I'm, I was born on Mars. <laughs> and it was kind of – it's a nice, sweet story. Um, it's not, like, heavily sci-fi because it's, it's near future. I think it takes place in the, the 2030s or 2040s, something like that. And it's kind of like Space Camp in reverse. <laughs> I loved oh that movie God. when I was a kid. Oh, I, I, even when I was a kid, it was a guilty pleasure. I thought it was crap, but still watched it. Oh, it was a crap movie, yes, absolutely. And this one isn't as cheesy as Space Camp was, but it's kind of got, you know, you got the the kid and the robot, except instead of going into space, he's coming back from it. But it was a nice story. It's not something that you're going to, you know, watch a hundred times or anything. But if you've got date night with your wives, give it a try. I recommend it. Yeah, my last movie that was, well, it was going to be on my on my list if I hadn't missed that episode, was uh, going to be the new Blade Runner movie. Mm-hmm. And I actually just a couple of weeks ago was able to go out and uh, catch that with a friend. And I, I'll say this, I liked it. I think that the movie suffered from some problems. First of all, I'll say this. They do a great job of visually taking you into this world. And it really feels like the world has advanced a number of years. The environments are also pulled partway out of the the book, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, and the original Blade Runner. The music is an homage to the original. It's I imagine there's some people that are going to hate it because it's too derivative of the original. Some people are going to love it because it is so in continuity with the original. In terms of sound design, I thought the movie was great. In terms of the visuals, I thought the movie was great. In terms of the concept, I was thoroughly into that. My main criticism of the film is something that I have to tell the children over and over again. Do not make the subtext text. (laughs) Good advice. Yeah. For anybody, not just children. It's like as soon as there's something that's funny... Then they'll say, oh, I know why that's funny. I'll really tell the joke, but make it overt. Like, no, 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 Stella. Do not make the subtext text. <laughs> um, and as soon as there is the viewer piecing a few things together to say, oh, I wonder if, don't worry. You don't need to wonder. Because what they'll do is they'll show you a flashback of that scene to make sure you didn't miss it the first time. Or the second time, or the third time. I swear there was one line that they played back at least four times. And it's like, okay, we get it. Do you know what? One, one of the things that's brilliant is maybe you can just let us rewatch the film because it was so good. Maybe we could have said, oh, wow, that was great. What's, you know, I need, I need to fill in those blanks and see it a second time. No, I already saw it the second time after I saw it the first time. <laughs> While you saw it the first time. Right. Yeah. So. 
that's my main criticism of the film. Still, I enjoyed it. It was a flawed film that I do not begrudge the parting of my money to sit in the theater and see. <laughs> Fair enough. I thought it was a, a worthy successor of the original Blade Runner. I thought it was too long, probably for the reasons that you're saying, that they just had to dwell on some things and make sure we understood it because, well, let's face it, the first Blade Runner was kind of confusing and we didn't understand it the first time, but that made it too long. And although I liked the soundtrack, maybe it was just the theater I was in, I felt like I was drowning in it. Oh, yeah, you it could was, feel the sound design. You didn't just hear it. Was it. it was in your chest. so loud. <laughs> I thought that could have been dialed back, you know, 10 decibels, and I'd have been okay with it. But overall, yeah, I was very, very happy with Blade Runner. Uh, and Harrison Ford was brilliant. Oh, yes. The fact that he was an older, curmudgeonier, hardened, more hardened Decker was a treat for me. So I guess he's, uh, he's redoing a lot of his old things. You know, he, he redid Indiana Jones. He redid Star Wars. He redid Blade Runner. I, I think he's going to redo Mosquito Coast. <laughs> <laughs> well, if he redoes six days and seven nights, then we'll know. So I might have parts of my geek card snipped off for this, but I have to make a confession. And I might have confessed this on the last show or on an earlier show, but I have actually not seen Blade Runner. That's okay. We still, still? You've had all summer. Yeah, I've had things happening, going on, a couple of them running around between my knees. And, uh, well, I wanted to wait until the second one was out on DVD, because then I thought Joy and I could do a back-to-back -back thing. One night, I'll rent the first one. Next night, we'll get the second one. Yeah, the thing that's is, reasonable. which first one are you going to get? <laughs> At whichever one is available to rent on Amazon or my Xbox or the local video store has. Okay. I'm not really going to delve too deep into that rabbit hole of additions. Well, the differences are about 15 seconds, so I don't think you'll be okay. Good. So unless there were any other movies uh, that we had talked about for the summertime, I thought it'd be fun to look at what holiday movies we are looking forward to. Star Wars. Star Wars. I think we just go ahead and name that one for all three of us. Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. Star Wars. Okay, fine. That one's out of the way. Of course, I open this whole thing up with talking about Thor Ragnarok. Uh, really looking forward to going and seeing that in the theater. I've heard nothing bad about it. I think it's already raked in somewhere of along like 28, 30 million at the box office. Another little interesting tidbit I read was that Joss Whedon, the guy who pretty much kicked off the whole current Marvel movie madness with the Avengers, he called it a modern masterpiece. Mm. It's like, wow. Okay, then. Um, you know, if you haven't heard anything bad about it, let me just go ahead and start and spoil your run. Um, <laughs> it, it was a terrible movie. I saw no redeemable factors from beginning to end, from credits to credits, nothing redeemable. Really? I haven't really seen it, but oh. <laughs> I at least want to spoil your record. <laughs> like, not having seen this movie at all, let me go ahead and tell you it was horrible. It's basically what you're saying. Well, now that you put it like that, I feel like I've got to retract something. <laughs> well, so that sounds like to me that you're ready to be a uh, newspaper film critic. <laughs> the public loves it, therefore I will find what's wrong with this. There you go. So, uh, that guy at the Wichita Eagle who said that hobbits were Peter Jackson's version of leprechauns. 
Uh, wow, uh, that re- that reminds me of a of a PVP comic strip where a young kid who had just read Lord of the Rings for his first time, and he's like, you know what, I've been I've been reading Lord of the Rings, but this Aragorn character, you know, he's totally a ranger. You know, uh, he, he, that, you know why why aren't Dungeons and Dragons suing Tolkien? Dude, that went the other way around when they used the word Balrog. Yeah. <laughs> so, besides Star Wars and besides Thor, the other movie that I am looking forward to this holiday season might surprise the two of you. Coco. Murder on the Orient Express. That does not surprise ah. me. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, this is a new take on the Agatha Christie novel. It's starring and uh, directed by Kenneth Branagh, who uh, plays the character Hercule Poirot. And the cast list is phenomenal. It also has Daisy Ridley, who we just saw in Star Wars, playing Ray. It's got Penelope Cruz, Johnny Depp, Derek Jacoby, Michelle Pfeiffer, Judy Dench, uh, William, William Defoe, and... I watched a trailer for it just a couple of days ago, and I was thinking, I'm in. With this story, with this cast, Kenneth Branagh, no, I'm all in. Can't wait to see it. I think I could sell that as a date night uh, with my wife just based on Judy Dench being in it. Yeah. Several of those actors, I would go see it just for them alone. But all together in a movie like this, it's either going to be just fantastic or it's it's going to suck out loud. There's going to be no middle ground for this movie. Well, those are my three. Have you guys got any other movies you're looking forward to? You know, you know, I think you covered it for me with Star Wars. There's not a whole lot else that I'm looking forward to over the holidays. I mean, there is the Justice League coming out sometime, I think, this month, actually. But I don't know. I will watch it, but it's not one that I'm excited about. Yeah, I'm having no hopes for it, no expectations. So that way, if it's not great, my heart doesn't get hurt. But if it's good, then I'll be pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. Like the the theater is just a difficult thing for me. You know, I've I've got two kids, I've got a wife, I've got two jobs, and you know, it's it's just one of those things that the theater does not always happen. So if I'm going to do it, I'm going to either do it socially or I'm going to do it for something I've really been wanting. Gotcha. All right. Um, One of our listeners asked a really interesting question on our Facebook page about uh, some nimble and light RPG systems and introducing that to to people. And I thought that it might be an interesting segue into talking about how do we introduce RPGs to new gamers, people who may not have ever played a role-playing game before. And this is something that we would do at my house, what we'd call our winter campaigns, is that we would have three to four RPG sessions for a small group and we wanted to balance things out so it would be somebody's first introduction to see how role-playing games work and maybe how they can continue to extend that fun with their friends. And uh, we had some pretty interesting ground rules when we started to set things right because we wanted to make sure that we created a friendly space for everyone at the table. So we decided that we would have one veteran player, I would GM, and then we would have no more than three other people at the table, maybe four, and 
Two of them had to be brand spanking new, never done this before, and somebody else, the other two could be somebody who'd maybe role-played once, maybe twice before, but not really felt this out. So that we did have a bunch of new at the table, but we also had a grounded veteran player who could kind of show how the ropes work and how to think without it being the GM telling you what to do, because that's lame. And some things that were also very important were social engineering. We were very careful about who we put at the table together. There's just certain chemistries that work well. We would not stock three bombastic, boisterous individuals with an easily overwhelmed and overstimulated introvert. That makes for a bad time for somebody, and we don't want to do that. So we think through who will work well at a table together, who's likely to get each other, and then give them a familiar setting with familiar mechanics. And we almost always ran Star Wars in the D6 system, because as our listener had asked, what's a good, simple system? And I always thought the D6 system made for an excellent way to have a fast-paced, cinematic adventure in a setting that was familiar to all the players that we had there present at the table. I agree that the the familiarity with the genre, Star Wars is an excellent choice for new gamers because mm-hmm. everybody pretty much already knows how it works. Yeah, if you're, um, they know what to expect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we actually had uh, one person who was not familiar with the expanded universe. They just happened to be tagging along with Erin Kenny. You know her, James. Yeah. And uh, she brought a friend along to visit our house in Boston, and something fell through for the night. And we're like, okay, let's put together a Star Wars adventure. And this woman was like, wait, so who am I? Like, what, what am I doing? Like, well, you're part of the rebellion. Like, wait, so, like, I like, know Luke Skywalker? Like, yeah, you guys could be BFFs off screen. And she's like, sweet. So, like, I could blow up a ship and, like, text him, LOL, just blew up a TIE fighter? Like, yeah, yeah, that could happen. <laughs> and she's like, okay, I'm in. <laughs> I think one of my most successful uh, campaigns uh, was a Star Wars game in which we had three, maybe four people who had never played a role-playing game before out of a group of seven, if I'm counting correctly, which I may not be. And yeah, everybody, everybody knew, okay, Star Wars, we know that. I was deliberately putting my game in places where the expanded universe didn't matter um, Mm -hmm. and places where there was plenty of story material to be found. I think the first question that I wanted to answer with my game was, why were there no Star Destroyers at the Battle of Yavin? And I think we've talked about this before. And And the uh, answer is because James blew them up. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And knowing, okay, well, the only thing that we need to have seen is Star Wars itself. You don't even need to see Empire Strikes Back to understand what's going on in this particular game. We know Star Destroyers, we know X-Wing Fighters, we know Death Star, and that's all you need to comprehend in order for this to work. And it worked really well. I mean, everybody seemed to have fun to the point where, okay, we're going to try and do this once a week became, hey, we're going to do this three times in one week. Uh, Brian, are you ready to run a game? Like, uh, no, not really, but we'll do it anyway. Nice. Um, and, of course, that's the sort of thing that can happen when you're running games for high school students who don't have anything else going on. Right, right. Well, I mean, I guess that brings us into the next question of when you have been running these games for brand new players, what challenges have you faced when you've got new people at the table? Timing being one of them. Yeah. Um, unfamiliarity with the system that you're using. You know, being familiar with the subject or the genre always helps. 
It helps bring excitement to the table. It also helps people get into the mindset of the game itself. But for a lot of people, even the simplest of RPGs, you know, people start seeing the numbers and the sheets and the page upon pages of the guidebook. It can be daunting to them. That's right. one of the reasons that I've enjoyed using a game like Primetime Adventures or Fudge where there aren't any numbers. You can say, okay, well, how good am I at shooting people with my blaster? And you say, you're great. Like, okay, I understand that. If you say seven, it's like, I don't know what seven means. <laughs> my game system I recently became familiar with, and I don't think we talked about this one when we were talking about RPGs for first timers, the Fate Core System. Read that book. And I watched an episode of Will Wheaton's tabletop series on YouTube where him, along with Felicia Day and a couple of others, played a session of this game. And it's really simple. Instead of like D10s or D20s, you have these things called fake core dice, which either have a plus, a minus, or a blank. And you take your skills and you put them in your little table. And you can be great at one. You can be good at a couple of them, fair at three, and average at four. And with each one of those comes like a plus. And it's like from a one to seven is like your difficulty number. And as you roll your dice, the plus means you get to add one to it. Minus means you take one away. Blank means nothing gets added. And that's your roll. And you do that for pretty much everything. So it's very simplified. And it's it could be applied to any genre whatsoever. You've read it. And one thing I also liked about something that can be for first timers is the, and we've talked about this before, but the cost factor. How much do these books cost? How much do dice cost? On Amazon, the Fate Core System book is only eighteen sixty-five. And Fate is based on Fudge, which is absolutely free. Oh, there you go. Mm-hmm. I was actually a little bit involved in the development of Fudge way, way back in 1992 on their list serve before the days of the Internet. And it's always been kind of an open source, free game. Of course, back then, it was a lot more primitive than Fate currently is. It's definitely been streamlined and improved since that time. One of the things that I've found to be a challenge is when we get newbie gamers and trying to reinforce to them that there is a difference between in-character and out-of-character. That, yeah, they'll certainly want a metagame at the table, and you try to keep that down to a minimum. But in one game we were playing, Kaja, my wife, was playing just kind of a pain-in-the-butt captain. And there were some people at the table that got it like, okay, yeah, the captain is a pain, and the captain is overbearing. So how do we deal with the captain in the game? And how do we pull the rug out from under the captain and assert our own selves when we have somebody who's running us lockstep? And another person who was like, I don't understand why Kaja's trying to rule the game. Like... <laughs> No, Kaja isn't ruling the game. Kaja will bow out if your character deals with her character in an in-character way. Like, but why is Kaja being, why is Kaja dominating the game? Like, okay, okay, okay. Well, We'll step back and explain this another way. Eventually they got it, but it was kind of a challenge to differentiate how is it that we react and interact as characters rather than as players. Gotcha, they weren't able to make the separation. Right. Although I'm sure it was startling to have them interacting with Kaja in that particular personality, since that is not her uh, usual personality. <laughs> well, unless you're cleaning the house and you're deciding that you don't want any part of it and you're actually hiding <laughs> reading books instead of actually. Yeah, I'm helping. sure that you like, see parts of her that the rest there. of us oh, do no, not. Totally straightening this basement. How's, uh, how's degreasing the, uh, the everything going up there? <laughs> degreasing like, the everything. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, that, then you will. Then you. I no, that has never happened. <laughs> yeah, it was. I think that's one of the things that made it so startling is that they had never seen her react in such a way before. It's like, okay, wait a minute, what, what's going on? It's like, yeah, what's going on is the game, and you get to, you know, you get to try on a different hat that isn't you, and we need to have dialogues. And it, at some point, we it says something about me as a GM where I didn't properly prepare this person that mm-hmm. we act in ways that are not us. I mean, it's not giving us license to do, you know, deplorable things in character. That's something entirely other. But these are not ourselves. These are characters. And how do we play a character? We could spend a good portion of an episode just talking about that, about the separation of character and player within a game and in a social structure. And I think that that's a worthy thing, especially as a social structure and as a moral structure as well. But that's too deep to get into at this point. Honestly, this whole subject of tips for running a game for first timers, I think this is one we should come back to. Sure. I would also love to do this as how to set up a newbie game night for table games as well, because there's similar things mm-hmm. going on, but albeit uh, different for table, card, and board games than an RPG. True. Let's, let's do this again. I completely agree. Well, I think that is uh, almost going to close us up for this time, except for the ever-popular Zombie Apocalypse Plan of the Week. Mike! Yeah, this week's zombie apocalypse strategy is a joint effort between the FDA and the Department of Agriculture to deregulate and privatize America's school lunch program. Once corporate America realizes that there is a literally free source of, albeit rotting meat, just wandering about, I think that corporate America will solve this zombie problem for us in absolutely no time. Remember, we don't have to worry about them eating our children if our children are eating them. You know, having grown up eating public school lunches like so many, I'm really having a hard time imagining really getting any worse, even with the implementation of that plan. Well, I guess it kind of depends on how much of the zombie can you cut off before it stops actually moving. You know, once you have it all ground, I think that, you know, even a little squirmy going down, it's not going to matter all that much. You got a plate of gawk? <laughs> no, just tell them it's corned beef. <laughs> To which all the kids say, again, and one kid in the back who's had a little too much is going, again. Well, and also, let's think of the economic benefits. Many of these corporations will gross millions. With heavy emphasis on the gross. Yes. You know, it's sad, but of all of the plans that you've come up with. That was that that thing about making subtext text again. Yes. I, I, (laughs) I think this is the one that has the possibility of becoming a reality and is also probably the actual grossest of all of them you've said. You should have heard what I left on the cutting room floor because there are other ideas I scratched, so you should be thanking me. Oh, I don't think I'll thank you for this one. (laughs) But before we do go, uh, one last thing I want to let you guys know about, and I just read about this yesterday. Apparently, Amazon is in talks with the Tolkien estate about creating a Lord of the Rings television series. I saw that. I was debating whether or not we should bring it up, but here it is. I thought about bringing it up for Geek Out, and I didn't know because I don't know how much I'm actually geeking out about it, but I couldn't let this show go by without at least mentioning it. Speaking of that, I'm going to get to another thing in just a second. Because I want to put a plug for something. But, yeah, the Amazon thing is with the Hobbits is still in talks. Like, nothing is finalized. No, but apparently... Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos himself has gotten involved with the negotiations. That may or may not make it more likely. I don't know. At this point, 
it really has my curiosity. One, if it happens. Two, if it does, where are they going to start? Are we going to see a re-imaging of the Fellowship of the Ring starting at The Hobbit? Or are we going to set the Wayback Machine to the beginning? And like in the beginning, there was Aya and he made the world and the Valar and all of that. Well, I will say if the first season is an entirely a musical as they're making the world, that will be certainly unique. And also, you know, you ask how far back is it going to go? This is the thing is that uh, as much as The Lord of the Rings is very much in our visual imagination as having come out just yesterday, the original one came out, gosh, before I was married. So 2001. when I was just married. So like, what, 15 years ago? Was it 2001 or 2002? 2001. Really? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. December of 2001. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. I got married in January 2002. So, yeah, it's been a while. Okay, then. So, well, whether we're ready for it or not, it could be happening. So... Let's hope for the best. That's all we can do is hope and pray for the best. And speaking of hoping for the best, I want to put in a plug for a game creator slash pastor on our district. You've had mention of him on the show before, and uh, I even put a plug on this on our Facebook. If you want to see me as a rat, there is a Kickstarter for this. There is an expansion for the game Pirates of the Caribbean Farm, which is a highly punny, funny game where you are a band of rats trying to steal pies from the farmer's wife. The expansion is now on Kickstarter, Curse of the Farmer's Wife, in which we've added two new captains, and one of them has a strong resemblance to me and my Ren garb, and I knew this because I sent him the picture. I did some proofreading for the game, and I did some playtesting for the game, so as a thank you, he worked with his wonderful, talented artist, and now I'm a rat. Already checked it out? Already backed the Kickstarter? Awesome. All because, as I told my wife, when else am I going to get the chance to poison Mike? And on that happy note, (laughs) I think that is going to wrap it up for us this episode. From all of us here at Geek at Arms, we want to say be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome.